You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Doug Nordman, and welcome to the What's Up Next Podcast. This is J.L. Collins, and welcome to the What's Up Next Podcast. This is Jane. Welcome to the What's Up Next Podcast. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, Doc, the burning question today for this episode is how to raise financially responsible children. We have an all-star guest panel who have managed to do just that, or at least we're going to find out if they managed not to screw up their kids. So we have JL, Jane, and Doug. Welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to have you. Just in case some of the listeners have not managed to engage in any of your content before, could each of you do a brief introduction? Jim? Well, I'm J.L. Collins, and uh, my blog is jlcollinsnh.com, and I am the author of uh, the book, The Simple Path to Wealth. Jane? Hi. Uh, my name is Jane Collins, and I am Jim Collins' wife. I just hang out with him while he does his Simple Path to Wealth and uh, all the financial stuff. Well, it's great having you today. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Doug? I'm Doug Nordman. I blog at The Military Guide, and I also have written a book on military financial independence and retirement. But one of the crowning glories and achievements of my life is uh, raising a daughter to the point where she's launched herself firmly into orbit and there's not going to be a boomerang. That, that sounds like a good goal for all of us. Uh, so let me start with Jim. I'm going to ask you an incredibly serious question here. How many times did Jessica get sent home from elementary school because the principal didn't appreciate her talking about FU money? <laughs> well, Doc, unfortunately, the answer to that is never. <laughs> uh, like Doug, uh, uh, Jane and I can take some pride in the fact that uh, Jessica, who's now 26, is is well launched into her uh, adult life and, and a very successful one at that. But uh, as I've talked about in my, my book and, and uh, on the blog, uh, I managed to pretty firmly turn her off to things all financial by being a little bit too intense uh, and probably way too early. So I don't think she was going to school talking about uh, anything financial, let alone uh, FU money. <laughs> so you mentioned starting too early, and I want to throw this over to Jane. Jane, 
do you remember when you started having conversations with Jessica about money? Oh my goodness, Jim started maybe when she was like three years old or four years old, uh, that early. So I used to just let him take over the financial stuff. But as she grew older, um, she, uh, I tried to introduce her to being frugal with, uh, you know, with how much she spent and what she uh, thought was good for her. So, What kind of conversations start at two and three? about finances well, if you're asking me, it's 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 let's go through the wall street journal together <laughs> i mean what three-year-old wouldn't wouldn't want to do that i think you can tell from from jane's comment and and that that uh, she was actually much more successful with with jessica in terms of teaching her how to be frugal and and uh, not caring about the, the typical consumer uh, uh, garbage that most people get ensnared in, uh, probably because she did it largely by example and a little bit of conversation and, and uh, didn't drag out uh, well, the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so, Doug, you, you mentioned in one of your posts, you say that it's time to start talking to your kids about money when they stop trying to put it in their mouth and eat it. Um, so tell me, tell me what some of your first discussions with Carol were about money. Well, I have to give credit to that quote to uh, David Owen. He wrote the book, The First National Bank of Dad, and many of our money ideas grew out of that. We started with that as a baseline, and then we just riffed off of it. We started talking with her about, you can do things with money. She was always very interested in uh, the transactions at the grocery store, at the teller machine, and she would want to know what was going on. And we'd explain, you'd go and take money, you'd be able to buy things. And I think one of her first experiences was knowing when she went to the grocery store that if she behaved, which was not always a sure thing, then she'd be able to uh, buy one special thing from the grocery store. And that one special thing would probably be something like a snack or candy. And she'd eventually be given the dollar bill and asked to pay the cashier on her own. So she learned how to do the transaction. That was about age three or four. And to her, that was being grown up. She was adulting. Jim, was there an age that Jessica looked at you guys and said, mom and dad, you're just not like my friend's parents. You look at money differently. Did they, was there ever that moment when she looked at you and said, why are you guys so weird? You know, that, that's actually an interesting question. And uh, the answer is it, it, it came several years after she had that, that revelation. Uh, uh, from what she tells me uh, uh, now, being out of college, is that when she first went to school and she began engaging with her friends on a more adult level as they were dealing with adult kinds of issues like how to pay for college and and college loans and that kind of debt. Uh, that was when she really got the first insight that that her mom and dad thought differently about these things. I don't think that had ever occurred to her uh, before college, and according to her, it never occurred to her before college. And and I think that's one of the reasons she had a lot of trouble relating to all of this information I was trying to force feed her, is it just didn't have any relevance. Uh, and she just thought it was part of the way the world at large operated. I think going to college and talking to her friends, she uh, got a whole different perspective that, that made her think maybe there is something unique uh, to be learned here. Jane, so Jim, I think in one of his posts wrote how I failed my daughter and talks a little bit about the simple path of wealth. 
I think some of that probably is tongue in cheek, but do you see looking back at Jessica's childhood that there were failures, things that you felt like you really didn't teach her about finance as well? I don't think so. I think she understood it. Uh, even when uh, we would give her an allowance and uh, Jim would uh, would uh, split it in two when he w- were giving the allowance and she'd say, 50% is what you put into uh, your savings account and the, the other 50% that's left will take another half of that and we'll give it to charity and the rest you can uh, spend on yourself. So as far as she was concerned, she only got 25% as, a, as an allowance. So... Um, I don't think we ever had a problem with that, but she knew because um, the way I uh, was uh, raised, I was very uh, frugal about how to spend money and uh, things like that. So I have been that way ever since. And so she saw me. Yeah, I uh, uh, I just wanted to say that I, I would uh, periodically in my conversations with Jane express dismay that uh, Jessica wasn't taking an interest and and uh, what I was saying didn't seem to be sinking in. And Jane would always say to me, you know, she is absorbing more than you realize that she's absorbing. And I'm not sure I ever entirely believed that, but it did give me comfort. And in retrospect, and, and now I, I have to say Jessica is pretty fully on board, although she does tell me she still has a mental block against this stuff. Thanks, Dad. Uh, <laughs> but but I, looking back on it, I think Jane was right. She was absorbing more than than uh, than I realized, and probably more than she wanted to give me the satisfaction of realizing. Doug, I saw you kind of shaking your head. You know, we talk a lot about teaching our kids, but then there's this aspect of financial modeling, of showing them good good behavior through your own actions. What do you think is more important, Doug? Is it the lessons you sit and teach them or is it that they see you navigating the world in a certain way? Oh, oh, you absolutely have to model the behavior you want them to eventually develop. You cannot go there and lecture them one way and then go ahead and behave another way. And with our daughter, we tried to go light on the actual discussions about economic policy and microeconomics. We tried to instead talk about how one special thing or you're going to have to get a really good job if you want to buy that, or you're going to have to save up your money for a long time. And we learned to simplify the financial concepts too. The book from David Owen would explain why he would give his kids extra money. If they would put a dollar in the bank of dad, then he would pay them a penny per dollar per month. Now everybody wants to invest in a bank of dad where the CDs are guaranteed and paying 12% per year. But you can't do percentages when you're in elementary school, not very well. And that's a way to learn how your money grows. And what I found was better than lecturing Carol or better than telling her how to do something was to sit down with a spreadsheet or with Quicken and show her how the numbers were growing. And then she'd suddenly realize that she had financial money, she had assets, she had leverage, she had power. And again, she just wanted to be a grown up. And that was one sure path to do it for her. 
Yeah. One thing I found about the bank of dad is that my kids always want to withdraw, but rarely want to deposit. You've got to test the system and you've got to make sure that the bank will be there for you. And if you want to withdraw your funds, they're just really making sure that this isn't some crazy scheme dreamed up by the parents. It's all going to fall apart when they have to save money for college. So they will test that out. But our daughter learned at a very early age that the bank of dad is not a lending institution. So, so Jane, both all, all three of you guys have, have talked about giving your kids allowances. Did you feel like you had to tell Jessica what to do with her allowance or was it up to her to spend it as she wished and save or not save on her own? It was up to her. And uh, I remember we did that all through her years because when she started, uh, when she was able to get a job, we told her that that was her money and she could, uh, you know, save some and spend it the way she wants, but to be careful at what she was spending. Uh, so as long as she knew she had to save some of it, because that's what we did with her allowance, she had that in her. It was instilled in her that she had to save. And she had an account uh, with the bank when she started working. So I used to uh, monitor her account. So I knew that she wasn't spending the way we thought she might think about spending. When it came to spending her money, she was really very careful because it was her money and she didn't want to spend it. She would try and if we were out shopping, she would look at me and say, um, do you think you could buy that for me? And I would say, no, you have your money. If you want it, you can spend it. And she would walk away without buying it. So, and didn't that just funny. warm your heart when you see your children actually, you see the gears clicking and, and you, because you've given them responsibility at, at a young age. I, I think that's often the, the common advice I hear from everybody. And I, I also follow the same book that you're talking about, Doug. And I do something similar with my children. And, and to see them actually not make a, a, a whimsical purchase because they've thought through the value of what that money of what that is versus the money they have in their bank. And the question I have is, so did you enforce her to have a, to save part of it? Or did you just give her the, the allowance and she spent it however she wished and she either saved it or didn't? It wasn't a big allowance that we gave her. So she couldn't spend a lot of it, but when she started working, there was no allowance. And oh, I see. She, yeah, it was just, she made her the money and it was up to her if she wanted to spend it on something, but she was very careful as to what she spent. A lot of her, her friends, I, I remember uh, they would, uh, because of where we lived in New Hampshire, they um, would spend it on uh, designer things, uh, designer clothes. But Jessica would always go to the thrift shop and purchase her stuff from there, which was wonderful to me. Her mother taught her well. That's right. <laughs> That's a big question, Jim. So I have my son spends money like it's water. The minute he gets money, he tries to spend it no matter what I say. And my daughter is very careful uh, and very frugal. And she really thinks about what she's going to spend on. So one of the big questions is, is kind of nature versus nurture. Uh, bringing up your daughter, was it her nature to be careful? Or do you think it was something that you and Jane had to really craft for her? 
That's a that's a great great question, and it's mm-hmm. one that I've given a fair amount of thought to. Um, but first of all, I, I just want to comment that that listening to Jane and listening to Doug, and the importance that I mean, Jane exclusively approached this in in terms of modeling her behavior. I mean, Jane uh, is is very frugal. She's very careful. She's very smart about how she spends money. I don't think she ever sat jessica down and said do this do this but that's what jessica grew up seeing in a very consistent way and that reflects what doug was saying that and which i in retrospect agree with that it's the modeling is much more important than the lecturing and i tended to focus on the lecturing i do think there there's absolutely a a uh, a nature part of it and i think we got very very lucky with Jessica on a lot of fronts. She was always a very, very easy child. I don't attribute that to any skill in parenting on our part. I think the best thing that we did collectively is we kind of stayed out of the way and we didn't screw things up. And I've come to believe that parents have a lot more ability to screw up their kids than they do to positively guide them because I do think yep. some things are kind of hardwired. But I think you have to, regardless, you 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 have to try. And And again, I would say that Jane's approach and, and Doug's approach of modeling the behavior is much more important than my approach of lecturing about it. Yeah, let's talk about modeling a little bit, Doug. There are two stories that I took away from the Camp Five that I went with you that really gel together nicely, and I'd like you to talk about them. One is that you had, knew of a guy who retired early uh, but was afraid to model that behavior for his children. So would oh, yeah. get dressed up in a suit and tie every day and pretend he was going out to work and get coffee and then come back later so that his his school-aged children wouldn't realize that he wasn't working. And I want to add that to a story that your wife, Marge, told us that when she's someone sees her at a party and asks what she does, she says, I, well, I'm Saturday Marge. What that means is that every day for her is like Saturday. And when people ask her what she does, she says, well, what do you do on Saturday? And she's like, well, I do that every day. Was there ever a concern for that type of modeling? It seems to me that with your daughter, for most of her childhood, you guys were retired. Uh, were you ever worried that she would grow up believing that once you hit a certain age that she should just have to not, she shouldn't have to work? Well, that's an, that's an ongoing conversation in our family. And when she was younger, she really appreciated being financially independent because we were financially independent and she was poor and she had to go to school every day. She had to worry about getting good grades and getting a job and I was surfing. And so she, uh, she had plenty of modeling. She had plenty of positive role models surrounding her about that. And people would talk about things around her and she would come back and ask questions later. And we talk about discussions like that, how money gives you choices and your spending choices decide how you're going to have to work or find a really good job. And I think she eventually internalized all that. But today, now that she's in her twenties, we still have that conversation and when we talk about investing or when we talk about giving her uh, a little bit of a gift of her inheritance every year, uh, I tell her, we're going to gift you again this year if that's all right. And she says, yeah, that's, that's good. We, we can take another gift this year. And I say, well, I just want to make sure that I don't stunt your emotional or professional growth. I, mean, <laughs> I want to make sure that you don't develop affluenza and, and lose the will to work. Is, is that okay? And so that's a good springboard for discussion. And personally, I feel that at that point, it's not about the money. It's about having that conversation about money while we're still all around to talk about it. And she doesn't end up with 
uh, a million dollar inheritance when she's 50. I think it's much more instructive for her to get a small 15 to $30,000 gift every year in her 20s when she has to learn those large sums of money and how to manage them. And you know what's happening now with, uh, uh, with people learning to manage those sums of money for their parents when their parents become elders. So it's a skill that I'm hoping that she develops while we're all around to talk about it so that when I'm not able to manage money anymore, she knows how to do it for me. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that, Doug. You, you've written extensively on your blog about dealing with your father who died last year, I believe, with Alzheimer's. Um, yep. Did you feel like he had given you those messages when you had to go and then manage his finances? I knew from looking through his files uh, what he had been doing and what he was planning to do from there on out. And when I first looked through his files, he was uh, at the point where he could no longer live independently and I was cleaning up his apartment and getting it ready for him to go to a care facility. But through his files, I could see what he'd been investing in and how he'd been spending his money. And ironically, he was extraordinarily frugal. For uh, 25 years, he was uh, banking half of his Social Security and even half of his small pension. And he was living on probably uh, somewhere between $1,000 and $1,500 per month for several decades. So by the time that I took over his finances, he'd been just putting the money into investments uh, from the early 80s all the way up through 2011 and 30 years of returns and his asset allocation for a 75 year old man was 85% equities. <laughs> so yeah, it, it raised my eyebrows, but we also realized everything I'd read, everything I'd learned by then that uh, I, I knew he needed to have a different asset allocation. So I could tell just from his files and from those kinds of documents he'd left behind. Uh, on a personal level, we didn't really discuss it. Uh, uh, about the biggest discussion in our house that we had with money was where I dedicated the flyleaf of my book to was that first conversation where my father pointed out that maybe after I retired and had a pension from the military, maybe I just didn't have to work anymore. And his question was a little more direct. His question was, well, why would you want to get a job after you retire? Didn't you save any money over the last 20 years? And it's uh, sort of a, uh, a, a confrontational way for somebody to figure out if they're financially independent or not, but it, it made me go back and look at those spreadsheets and do the numbers and holy cow, he was right. And so I do give him credit for pointing out the obvious to me, uh, but I had mostly to figure these things out from his file cabinets, from his documents, not so much from family money conversations. Um, you've heard the term revenge parenting, where you, <laughs> where you raise your kids better than you were raised. And my spouse and I are guilty of that. We tend to go all the way to the other side of the bell curve on whatever thing frustrates us. So in our family, we probably talk about money more than our daughter wants to hear about it, strictly because when we were being raised, it wasn't a subject of polite conversation. I can see Paul agreeing with me on that. It's just something that you grow up with. That's your culture. And you never question it until you're in your 20s and 30s and become aware of other cultures. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. 
It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week. These are chef prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Yeah, and that's so, something interesting, or I'm sorry, Doc, um, something interesting that this talking about money is so taboo. And that's why I appreciate uh-huh. so much what JL and Doug, you've done for the community and all the other influencers that are out there because we're opening up the conversation. We're kind of trying to crack it open. Because of that, I find that I don't feel like I have the... Um, the lexicon or the skill set to help to to effectively talk to my own children about it, which is one of the reasons why this question is so, I think, topical because I don't think I'm the only person that falls in that category. We don't know how to talk about money because nobody else does. So Jane, did, did your parents talk to you about money? And if they did, how has that affected your relationship with your daughter? Well, uh, I remember my dad would tell, uh, would tell me every month that he was putting a certain amount of money in an account for me. And uh, that's the extent of the money that, uh, you know, conversations that I had with my dad. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, the the nice thing was that it was an account in England. So I was kind of excited about that. Oh, my goodness, I have an account in England. But that was the, the extent. 
Yeah. I, I always wonder when my wife and I talk about my wife currently working, she really worries about what specific behavior she models towards my daughter. So I was wondering, Jane, do you feel that it's a different conversation that you have with Jessica than, than Jim has because it's more woman to woman or mother to daughter? Does, does gender play a role in what messages we send to our children? Do you feel like you talked differently to her than Jim did? Um, I don't talk too much about uh, money with uh, Jessica. <clears throat> Excuse me, but I think she understands because when she wants to, when we go out together and she wants to buy something, I always talk to her about, do you really need it? I try to put some sense into her as to make a good decision of what you want to get. As far as savings, whenever she opens an account, she always puts me as uh, uh, on her account as well. So I have access to her account. And uh, when I see there is something uh, that I question, uh, when I see it on her account and I question her about it, she always has a very good answer. So I don't talk too much about money because I know she understands and I know what she's doing. Um, and she has a very good uh, sense of uh, savings. So uh, I don't think gender matters too much, you know. Jim, you, you've mentioned before, I think, in podcasts that one of the reasons you started your blog uh, was to talk about investing to your daughter. Do you feel like it was Jane who mostly taught about frugality and it was you who mostly talked or mostly taught about investing? I mean, did you kind of cleave things off in your relationship that way because that was what was more comfortable for each of you? Yeah, I think the way it, it, it turned out and evolved, that, that was certainly uh, certainly what happened. It was not a strategic decision that we made at any point, but in our marriage, I've always handled the investments and, and Jane has always handled the, uh, the outgo, the spending. And so it's, I suppose it makes logical sense that that Jane was the one who taught Jessica how to be careful with money when it came to spending it. And uh, I was trying to teach Jessica how to, to invest it. So the money works, works for you. Yeah. And Doug, was there a similar division of labor between you and Marge? Not, not intentional, but uh, Marge has always been the big picture strategic thinker. And uh, I've been more interested in the tactics and the execution. So it, Marge is very good at looking at a situation or looking at a spreadsheet or a graph and asking a question that makes you go, huh. And you know, you're going to spend another three hours plugging numbers into a spreadsheet and figuring out the answers. And of course, Carol grew up with that same thing happening to her. Marge would ask a couple of big picture questions and then Carol would realize that she had to go figure out something or solve a problem. And I would be the guy who would say, well, we can sit down and look at this or we could do it that way. So I'm curious, Doug, those big picture questions are always interesting to me. And I'm curious, what kind of questions, do you have any examples of what those big picture questions might be that would get those wheels to spinning for Carol? Well, when Carol would come home, she would talk about uh, ways she wanted to spend money. And uh, Mar Marge would say, well, you're going to have to have a very good job for that. And then uh, she would, Carol would come sit down with me and we'd talk about, well, you got this much income and you've got this much expenses and here's your budget. And so we would actually work through the hard numbers that came from knowing that you needed to have a, a really good job. One of the big picture ideas that I give Marge all the credit for was the uh, 401k for a kid. 
And that's where when Carol was having her eighth birthday, we explained to her that we were starting a 401k and we talked about how that works for grownups. And we said in eight more years, which to an eight year old is an entire lifetime, that in eight years, the 401k would have enough money in it that she could use that to buy a car. And just her thought as an eight-year-old of her being someday 16 years old and driving a car, right right there, that conversation blew her circuit breakers. We could have stopped <laughs> right there. But she also began to appreciate how money compounds and how a little bit of money put away every month. I would make a big deal about showing the spreadsheet every month and how the contributions and, and the matching contributions, of course, were growing and compounding. And although eight years seems like a very long time, that it eventually turns into the money you need to buy a car. I don't know if I ever wrapped that story up when I told that at Camp FI, but our daughter has had this tendency during her life when presented with two choices to go for door number three. <laughs> and when she turned 16 and the, the hallowed day finally came where she could go out and buy herself her own darn car, she didn't. And she looked at that $5,000 and she said, Mom, Dad, I know that Dad has always wanted to buy a Prius. And I want to learn how to drive a car better than this great big old station wagon we've got. And so maybe we should put our money together and I'll contribute my $5,000 and I'll buy a share of the Prius with you. And then when I go to college, you can buy my share back and give me my $5,000 back. <laughs> yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta reward that initiative. You've got no to, kidding. Uh, how many, <laughs> how many 16 year olds? Yes. And, and my doors got blown off. And, and when we recovered, we said, yes, we'll do that. But of course, before you can have your share bought back, if there's damage, there will be a deduction for excessive <laughs> mileage or wear and tear. But it became a very good metaphor for her. And when she got to college and got to the point where she did decide to buy her own car, it's one of my proudest moments is watching her stand up to the seller of that vehicle and negotiate with him and hold a stack of $100 bills in her hands to help him understand that she was ready to buy right now. And she, all in her own negotiating skills, managed to knock 10% off the price of that vehicle just by flashing the cash. I'd like to transition this a little bit to you, Jim. Um, I, in, in what I've read of Doug's conversations with his daughter, it seems like he left choices. As he was talking about, presented door one or door two, she might choose door three. But it seems like choice was a very important part of his teaching. I'm wondering when you, Jim, were looking at your daughter, did you give her choices accepting the idea that she could fail, that she could be a poor steward of whatever money she had, whether it be allowance or money that she made from a job? Or did you really feel like you had to direct her more and keep her from making those, making those bad choices? No, I, I absolutely believe in choices. That was one of the reasons behind an allowance to give her money early on that she could make mistakes with. And that was a relatively small amount of money. And, and as Jane alluded to earlier, when she started uh, working and, and earning her own money, then, then, of course, she already had a little background on how to spend it wisely. But <laughs> I, I do remember one story in particular when she was uh, coming up towards graduation uh, from high school. She approached me and she said that she and a friend of hers wanted to throw a party for all of their graduation party for all of their friends. And the party that she was describing would have been a, a fairly expensive party and she wanted to know if I would, I would pay for half of it. And, you know, we were talking a couple thousand dollars uh, for the kind of thing that these kids wanted to do. And, and I said to her, well, let me think about that a little bit because on the one hand I wasn't 
opposed to the idea of having a party and was something we could have easily afforded. On the other hand, uh, it just seemed like not the kind of thing that, that would have been my first choice for spending the money. And so finally, I, I, I hit it on a solution and I said to Jessica, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I will give you for your graduation to the $2,000. If you want to spend it on the party, then it's your money to spend however, however you wish, rather than dad picking up the tab. I noticed a few weeks later that I hadn't heard anything about the party. And so I, <laughs> I said to her at one point, so, so Jessica, I forget her, girl, her, her girlfriend's name. I said, but, you know, so how's the planning uh, how, you know, with you and Susie? How's the planning for the party going? And, and she was like, ah, yeah, we decided the party's not that, not that important after all. <laughs> so kind of like, like Doug's heartwarming story on the car. That one made my, my heart sore. Both of you guys are talking about conversations that were with your older teenage daughters heading into college time. So, Jane, tell me about the discussions you guys had about paying for college. Did Jessica know whether you were going to pay for college or not at the time she went? Was the idea that she would have to contribute? Or what, what did those conversations come out to be about whether she would have to pay her own way or not? Well, she knew that uh, we were going to pay for her college, but we told her that anything other than education, she would have to fend for herself. So while she was in college, she got a job uh, at the university. And uh, when she came home, she worked uh, at, the, at a restaurant. So she made money so she could spend it, uh, uh, you know, whichever way she wanted. But she knew right from the very beginning that Jim and I were going to pay for our college. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to jump in there and say, I had, for better or worse, I'd always said to Jessica, your job is to, uh, is to do great in academics and to get in the best school you can. And my job is to figure out how to pay for it. Uh, but as, as Jane pointed out, paying for it meant we paid for room board tuition. You know, if you want to go out, you want to buy clothes, that kind of thing, that's that's on you when you go out and you get a job to do that. I think that, that worked well. It allowed her to have a, a, a great college experience than, than uh, allowed her to, to do it without uh, having to go into debt. I taught her a little bit about the need to work to, uh, to achieve the, to buy the things that you want to, that you want to buy. Yeah, Doug, talk to me about the same conversation. Um, did Carol think that college was going to be paid for? How did you work that out with her? We, we talked about how we built a college fund and it would pay for the costs of tuition and room and board. But of course, anything entertainment or travel would be on her to, to fund that. We ended up going in a different direction too, because uh, when she finished eighth grade, uh, we accidentally gave her a tour of our alma mater, the uh, U.S. Naval Academy. And at the end of the day, she was so impressed by the place that she decided the college search was over before it had really started. And we spent the next three years educating her on what real colleges look like and how you have many more choices than your parents and how you're smarter and you can do a better job than just going to the Naval Academy. I, I know that sounds snarky, but the uh, issue was that we really did have her skill set raised to that point where we knew she didn't need to go be a midshipman. She didn't need to go have a plebe year. She didn't need all that regimented stuff at the Naval Academy that I needed to stay out of reform school when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, we were very clear on a college fund that if she was a good steward of the college fund, then when she graduated, there would be profit sharing. 
And so when the inevitable questions came up about this old MacBook is getting slow and it's not running well and I need a new MacBook, we could have that conversation about the college fund. Did she want to spend the money now? Did she want to try to figure out other ways to keep that MacBook going for a while? Did she want to have profit sharing? What was her question? And after a while, when you come to your parents and you want to do those things and it starts a conversation and you're presented with an array of choices, after a while you internalize that dialogue. And so over those four years of college, uh, she came to us with those questions less and less. And instead she told us what decisions she'd made or what thoughts she'd had and what she was going to do about it. So I knew that she was taking over and, and being a good steward. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about taking over. Doug, you wrote a, a post called Parents' Letter to an 18-Year-Old. Um, <laughs> and one thing I really loved about that is it was like a real-time vision for all your readers to see of how you were handing over the financial torch to your daughter. Was that part of the purpose of that letter? Yes, we, we, we got her permission before we posted that letter in the blog, of course. That's not something you want to wake up to and read your parents posting on the internet. But the idea came to us from a book that talks about how you have to give the kids the understanding that they're, they're on their own, but you're there if they need you. And we wanted to communicate that to her too. And again, revenge parenting. I always felt like when I was coming home from college and spending time with my family that there were still these unwritten rules and I hadn't really figured them out, but there would be guidance by lightning strike. You know, you'd think you're going along all happy and doing the right thing and suddenly this lightning bolt would come down from the heavens and scorch your tail and uh, suddenly you knew you needed to do something different, but you really didn't have the rule book to help you through that. So we figured just like anything else you get in the Navy, uh, and we're very focused on training people in the Navy and teaching them to make decisions, that we give her that rule book. And so that was the whole intent of that letter was to transition us from being the authority figures to being coaches and mentors. Now it turns out I was wrong in one area of that. I'm always going to be dad. I can't ever stop being dad. I can't ever stop being the coach or the mentor. And in fact, now that she's married, I have two people calling me dad. <laughs> but what we did get her to understand was that it wasn't our standard of behavior that she needed to aspire to. It was her own internal standard of behavior. And in that letter, we use the analogy of there's no more curfew. You don't have to be home by a certain time. You don't have to ask if you can use the car. But if there's an incident down at Waikiki at two in the morning outside of a bar and there's gunfire, you're the person who's going to have to explain that to your college and your ROTC lieutenant and the other authority figures in your life. So just think about how you want to explain that to everybody else. But hey, if you have a question, we're here for you. Call us if you need help. And Jim, Jim and Jane, I kind of throw the same question over to you. Let's start with Jim. Was there an age you can remember or a time you can remember where you kind of handed over the torch and said, okay, it's on you now? You know, I, I don't think there was a, a specific time. Uh, we we always tried to raise Jessica to have wings, and so we always tried to give her as as much freedom and as much independence as as we possibly could, and consistent, of course, with her responsible use of it. And and she, for the most part, was always extraordinarily responsible. I, I do have to to uh, go back to a comment that Doug Doug made just now about about always being her dad, and uh, it reminds me that <laughs> Jessica was about 12. Uh, she wanted to do something I wouldn't let her do. I forget what it was, and she got a little angry at me, and she she said, Dad, you have to understand I'm, I'm, I'm not your little girl anymore this, at the age of 12. And I said to her, Jessica, you have to understand you will always, Ooh. always be my little girl. 
and she's 26 today and she is still my little girl. <laughs> Much more independent little girl, but nevertheless, we never stop being dads. Uh, I can imagine. And, and Jane, as, as your daughter gets to this age where, where she is looking for probably a life partner, and do you guys worry about the financial proclivities of whoever she ends up with? Do you worry that she will find a good financial match or someone who carries the family sensibilities? Yes, we hope. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually maybe a better question for me. Yeah, it's better. <laughs> hope, hope is all you have left because she's going to do her own thing no matter what you think. That's, you know, Doug, a, a, amen to that. And and that is actually the, the only the only fear I have left in, in terms of her life is that, that if were she to get involved with the, with the wrong type of guy and, and especially along, uh, well, maybe not especially, but, but, um, uh, fiscal issues certainly are high up on that list. Uh, so far she shows great good sense, um, uh, and, uh, in all areas of her life. And, uh, she has uh, been steadily dating a young man uh, for I don't know a year or so now, and and uh, uh, he seems to be a a, uh, a smart, stable kind of guy. So uh, you know, so far so good. But uh, but that is yeah, as I'm sure Doug will will attest. Of course, you mentioned Doug, your daughter's married now, but I'm sure before that was something that that occupied part of your thinking. Yeah, I, I have this Drop picture. And hang on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. I have this picture of of you know the old school movies where the teenage boy comes to the teenage girl's house and the dad is sitting there cleaning his revolver at the desk. Well, I, I see Jim sitting at the desk with a bunch of spreadsheets, uh, a bogleheads for him up on his computer and, and, and trying to, to scare a potential mate. And the shotgun is the paperweight. <laughs> So, Doug, you you did you gained a son-in-law, and in a sense, uh, someone who feels like another child. Did you feel like you had to also create some financial modeling for your son-in-law too? No, not at all. Uh, our daughter uh, cut this one out of the herd and uh, decided she liked what she saw. And as they grew together and developed their relationship, she was teaching him everything she had learned from her parents about finances. And he's already got his own knowledge from growing up in his family. But coupled with what she was able to tell them, they were able to figure things out. And we talk about it all the time. Uh, when we gift money each year, we, we say, listen, we want to gift you some of your inheritance now while you're in your 20s and you can learn how to manage large sums of money. And so let's talk about it. And so we talk about what they want to do with that money, where they want to put it. Uh, one interesting conversation has been whether we give them all cash uh, or whether we give them some shares of Berkshire Hathaway stock. I'm not talking the A shares, of course. I'm talking the tiny little B shares. But it's been a productive way to start a conversation about Berkshire Hathaway and owning companies and businesses and where the company's going and what you can do with this stock and the tax issues behind the stock. It's not necessarily about an efficient transfer of wealth or making them financially independent in their 30s just for mom and dad gifting them as much as it is having that conversation about money and with those conversations, helping them develop their own plan. I'll, I'll put in an aside here that in the Navy, in the occupations they both have, the skills they have in, in their parts of the Navy, 
it's very easy for you to sign a bonus contract to stay in the Navy for three to five years. And when you sign that contract, each year you get thirty dollars to $35,000. And if you're in the right place at the right time, you can easily one day double your base pay. You can essentially get a 40 to 50% raise by the way your base pay goes up for that bonus contract. On the other hand, you have to stay in the Navy for three to five years. So we wanted very early on in the process to make sure that she didn't do what her father did and chase all the money he could in a submarine force. We wanted to make sure she understood that it's only money and that you still have to have a work-life, quality-of-life balance in your, in your future and don't obligate yourself just for the money. So it's been very productive to talk about the gifting from mom and dad versus the bonus money from the Navy and putting that all in context of the life choices it gives you. Jim, you know, a lot of this makes me think about we kind of face two struggles, right? We have one struggle is that we're the parents trying to teach our our children. But the other struggle is we're really part of a different generation. And each generation discusses money differently. I wonder sometimes if we struggle and if you struggle with your daughter because generationally they think so differently about money than we do. Have you noticed a generational problem? You know, I, I, I can't say that I have, and not only have I not noticed it with my daughter, but but I haven't noticed it particularly with the uh, millennials who are, at least those who, who I've gotten to know through the FI movement. I think, you know, money is, money has certain characteristics. It's it's a tool, and it's a, it's a tool that, that uh, uh, you know, like any tool, there's, there's, proper ways to use it and that are effective and improper ways to use it that are dangerous. And those don't change generation, generationally. So I think on that score, we can, we can kind of talk about it uh, on the same basis. I don't see a, a generational gap there. I mean, maybe there would be a generational gap with some millennials who just haven't been taught about money and how to handle it and how to spend it. But, but even there, I don't think that's a generational thing. I'm a baby boomer. And, and I can remember uh, my peers when I was my daughter's age who were pretty clueless about money. And, and so, again, I don't see that as a generational thing. I think it's interesting that uh, a term that's, that's sort of come to the, the fore in the FI world is this idea of second generation FI, which of course are our children, oh, yeah. those of us who are on this path. And I, I kind of like that concept. And it's interesting to watch my daughter, at least, in the, and Doug was alluding to how money isn't everything and, and you know, you want to find work that's satisfying and, and what have you. And, and I think some of us first generation five people uh, uh, work pretty, and it sounds like Doug is one of them, and I certainly was, worked pretty hard at jobs that weren't always satisfying so we could get to a goal where we could, we could do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, our children have resources that we didn't have, and uh, I think that's great. And I noticed that the job my daughter's in now, uh, she chose over a, uh, a job that was arguably uh, more prestigious and certainly paid more money, but the work itself wasn't all that exciting. And the job she has now pays a little less. The organization is not as well known. But the range of experiences and people she's meeting are are phenomenal. And I don't think that's a choice I would have made at her age uh, because I don't think it would have been a choice that that I could have made. But I think it's a brilliant choice uh, for her. And I think 
that while it pays less money now, it, the the things that she's learning and the people she's meeting will pay huge dividends going forward. So I think the fact that that she is more secure in money allows her to make bolder choices at an earlier age. And and I grew up with a great insecurity about money, and uh, so it took me a while to to make those bolder choices. And I. I see Doug nodding, so I, I think I've got yeah. a kindred spirit on this subject. All about the money. Yeah. Tell me, tell me, Doug, about the generational differences. I saw you kind of jump when, when Jim was talking about that. Well, the, the generational difference isn't with the millennials. It's with us boomers and with our parents, because I can remember when I was uh, a young boomer in my 20s, listening to my father-in-law talk about the Saturday matinee at the movies as a kid, where you could do everything in town that you wanted to do with a nickel. That got you a movie, a bucket of popcorn, uh, two movies, maybe some candy at the end of the show. And I remember thinking how silly that was that a nickel would go that far. And yeah, hell, it cost us a quarter in those days. Exactly. And then today I find that what I think of as value in a $5 bill really doesn't reach my daughter's perception of value until it's at least a $20 bill. And it's because of 50 years of inflation. But the person who's growing up with that, who's in their 20s, they're keenly aware of the value of that money and what they do not understand, what they do not need to understand or don't appreciate is how we have baggage that we brought with us back when $20 really used to be a lot of money. And today it's more or less devalued. It's literally 25% of what it used to be when we were growing up. Well, I feel like we could have this conversation on for hours and I wish we had the time to do so. But in, I think we did that for a weekend a few months ago. Yeah, we did. That's, that's a good pitch for the, the value of having of, of meeting face-to-face, which a, a lot of the reason why this podcast um, has, has become a podcast and something we're doing is because of how much we, we enjoy these type, type of conversations at Camp Fi, at FinCon. And I should, I'm certain that's that way at Chautauqua, which I have not had the pleasure of going to before, but I cannot uh-huh. wait until it sits there. The problem with me is I have these young kids that I have to keep, have to keep, keep track of. So I've got to figure <laughs> out a way to solve for them. And to, so to bring this whole conversation around, I'd like to ask each of you the, the final question, which is what we began with, is for the listeners, people who have children of varying ages, how do, would you recommend, how would you advise people to raise financially responsible children? Jim, do you have your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I think, as I said earlier, I, I, would, I would second what Doug and, and Jane have said, that that the best way to do is to model your own behavior because your kids pay much more attention to what you do than what you say. Uh, I think the mistake that I made and my daughter teasingly, but I think there's a serious undercurrent of it tells me that she still has a little bit of a mental block about this stuff is that I, because it, it is so such mastering money is such an important subject And your life can be so much better if you learn how to use this tool than if you don't. And I was so intent that my daughter have that advantage of knowing how to use the tool that that I I just I went too hard too early and and probably too much lecturing. I think a little bit of conversation is is good, but maybe it's twenty percent or even ten percent against the eighty or ninety percent of modeling. Jane, would you like to jump in on that uh, with some thoughts on how you would tell other people that are interested in hearing your advice on how to raise financially independent children? Yes, I would uh, agree with Jim that it's modeling, uh, you know, you be the model and because the children love to see 
their parents as a, as a model and they want to copy that. Um, also, not too much, uh, do not spend too much time on talking about uh, <laughs> finance because if they see you modeling it, they know that uh, what they should do because you have succeeded in life. So follow what you have. You know, try to encourage them to uh, save into if they want to spend money to that they have to make their own go out and look for a job and when they have their own money then they can spend it uh, you know with some guidance from you i love that doug do you have any thoughts to close it close us out they've got to have enough of an allowance to learn how to manage money they've got to learn how to make the choices make the decisions and fail at home in a safe place instead of doing it at high school or college or as young adults and then after that, you've got teachable moments for everything after that, ways to earn more money, ways to invest more money. They're good to have conversations. And in the conversations, it's got to be clear to the person who you're trying to talk with that you're discussing choices. You're not trying to tell them what to do. You're trying to give them the idea of how to have the conversation and discuss it <clears throat> and then figure out what you're going to do as a result of that discussion. I think that's a very good summary and it's something that I've personally tried to take to heart and I took some things from what we talked about at Camp Fi South, the one in Little Rock, the one we went to a couple <laughs> months ago where I live. And it, it was, I'll, I'll take a lot of that from David Owen, which I, I, I've already been doing some of that and I, I'm using the the um, FAMZU app that allows you to Boy, I wish that had been around 20 years ago. It's really nice. So for those of you who have not heard of this, it's, a, it's an application called FAMZU, and we'll put it in the show notes. It's I think, was generated largely by the book that he keeps talking about, David Owen, the, the first National Bank of Dad. And it's really good. It, I would say it's the current um, holy book of how to raise financially independent or financially responsible children. I think they call it a foolproof method. And we're trying with our kids. And I would say it's um, it's been successful so far. Uh, my kids are currently 11 and 8. So time will only tell how good it <laughs> really bears out. And I think I have a lot of the same same questions that Doc G has. But he, he has, his kids are just like three years older than mine, 11 and 14 and 11, right, Doc? And so those of you that who are listening, oh, man, this is just such a wonderful, insightful advice from all three of you. I thank you so much for coming out and talking to us about this and sharing your insight and all of that you've done for the community. So I'd like to give you each a chance to uh, promote uh, your current place on the internet and what, you are, uh, what you're working on and what is up next in your life. Doug, what's going on in your life right now? Well, mostly surfing, uh, but uh, I blog at themilitaryguide.com and I've written the book, The Military Guide to Financial Independence and Retirement. What I tell people is if you're not in the military, if you're not a veteran, you still know somebody who is. And if they have questions about their military pay, their benefits, their personal finance, I'm the guy who can help them answer. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on here, Doug. Jane, how about you? What's up next in your life? What's, what's going on with you? Uh, since I quit my job, I just want to take life All right. and enjoy life and uh, to travel and see the world. There's so much out there that's still waiting to be explored by me and uh, to meet a lot of people. So that's what I want to do. And Jim, how about you? What's, what's up next in your life and where can we find you? If we didn't already know, I'm sure we do, but go, go right ahead and share. <laughs> well, let me first comment on, on what Jane just said because – she, uh, uh, the job that she left, uh, I don't know, three years ago now or however long it's been, uh, she was a, 
librarian at grammar school where, where Jessica uh, had gone and she loved that job. And for the most part, it gave us time to travel because it was a school schedule. But uh, I kept trying to pry her away from it because she couldn't come to things like Chautauqua because that, that interfered with the, the school year. And uh, it wasn't until Jessica was in the Philippines at the Peace Corps and we were planning to go to, uh, to Asia to travel around and to spend a few weeks visiting her. And Jane went to the school and, and needed the time off and it conflicted with, uh, with the schedule. And they said, well, no, we can't do that. And Jane said, well, it's been fun, kids, but I'm gone. <laughs> so that, that worked out uh, well for me. Uh, as I said at, in the beginning part of the show, uh, I, I blog at jlcollinsnh.com, uh, mostly about financial stuff, but pretty much whatever captures my fancy and uh, these days. And I have a book out, uh, The Simple Path to Wealth. And Jane and I are uh, just a week back from uh, uh, two weeks of Chautauqua in Greece, uh, Chautauqua is this uh, annual event that we do where we gather a very small group of people. We limit it to 29. Uh, we bring them to some cool place and we hang out together for a week with uh, myself and a couple of other uh, bloggers and speakers and uh, we just have a great time. And so we're already planning uh, next year's events. Uh, we're going to go back to the UK, which is where we were last year. Uh, we're going to do two back-to-back -back weeks there, and then in the spring, and then in the fall, we're uh, going to Portugal for two back-to-back -back weeks. So that's what's occupying my time at the moment as we get it all planned, and then I'll be able to kick back and relax until we actually get to go. So that was a, a really interesting episode. Um, I think we all struggle in the financial independence community uh, what to do with our children. The reason why is there's this feeling that if we coddle them too much or if we make life appear too easy to them, uh, that they'll never learn how to be good financial stewards. And so I personally have struggled a lot with this idea of how do we teach our children appropriately? Do we sit them down as if we were teachers and they were students and teach a class? Or do we make sure they see us being good financial stewards ourselves and see our behavior and then model it? for themselves. And, and, you know, so that really becomes a big question of what do we do as financially independent parents to make sure that the next generation not only has money, because we could always give them money at some point, but has the requisite skills in order to be good stewards themselves of their money. What, what do you think, Paul? Well, I think the summary of what the guest said is what I've come to, and they gave me a little bit better terminology for it, even since just listening to this episode, it's this idea of, of modeling and, and this, these are my terms, giving them money responsibility as early as possible and let them make mistakes. And there was a, I won't say a difference of opinion, but there was um, kind of an unsaid statement that to not necessarily force kids to spend their money in a certain way, but to make them take, say, take half of it and they're going to save that part or give that part away. But then the part that they're given to spend, whatever that percentage is, that percentage you allow them to go and make the mistakes. And I have seen this happen in my own children, trying to institute some of the examples from the book by David Owen of giving my kids money allowances very early. And, and they're, I would say, fairly generous allowances. It's a it's dollar per month per year of age they are. So if a 10-year-old gets $10 a week, so it ends up being 40 bucks a month 
for them to spend however they wish. And if they don't spend it all, then they get a little bit of interest on that money. And we use a service called FAMZOO to do that for us automatically because I'm very big on automating things because if it was up to me to remember to do it every week, month, I would forget. So once a month, they get interest on their money and then give them that money to go and spend. And I love this idea of as many examples of where they have to go spend their own money on their discretionary things. You know, things that the, the things that kids nag you for constantly, the candy, the, the uh, can I get this toy, whatever. I, I just say, did you bring your card with you? And they actually have a debit card. I was like, did you bring your card? Well, if you didn't bring your card, the answer is no, because you don't have any money. But if you do bring your card, you know, how much money you have? Well, okay, I have, you know, my kids now have like 300 bucks on the, on the spend part of their money. And that has opened up their spending or changed their spending habits so profoundly. They have now become natural savers because they just, they, I see my son, especially who's now 11 going through the process of, ah, that's a little bit too expensive. Yeah. So we do something somewhat similar. Um, when our kids turn 10, so when my son turned 10 and now that my daughter has already, so we will give our children $520 or $10 a week for 52 weeks, but we do it on January 1st. And then it's up to them to budget and they actually have to buy their own clothes. They have to buy pretty much everything except food and school supplies. But I'll tell you, the problem comes down to it's still hard to then let them do their own thing when we see them spending. And it's still, my wife and I still kind of look over and say, well, do you really need that? Whereas I think we need to let them make the mistakes. And so I think we have the budgeting part down. I think our kids have learned, but I think we start to stumble because we try to protect them from making mistakes. And we have to catch ourselves uh, because part of this process is failing, right? You have to go out and overspend and then realize you don't have money for other things you need. Mm -hmm. Um, I also get stuck with the nature versus nurture issue uh, because I have two very different kids, right? So I have one kid who's a total saver and then one kid who spends the minute the money gets in his pocket. So it kind of makes me wonder, are they just born that way or how much can we truly change their behavior? But it sounds like with your kids, you've been able to, you, you feel change their behavior a little bit. Yeah. And I would say my kids have a similar dynamic. My son's older and he's three years older than my daughter and he's the spender and my daughter tends to be the saver. And she's, she's just turned eight. So she's just young enough now that it's a little bit, it's a little bit too much for her to process the interest and the idea that you're getting more money. But my, my son definitely gets it. And he has, he is a spender, but he wanted something, he wanted to buy an Xbox. And I said, okay, so here are your options. You can save your money up and you can go and buy an Xbox and, but you got to pay for it yourself. And he was so excited to get one. I mean, like he's, he's a standard little boy that just lives for video games. And I said, you have to spend it, but let's talk about how we can, what our options are. You can get a brand new one or you can go and get a used one or the next generation back. And he wanted a certain type of game. And he shopped around online and then we went around locally and found a used one. And that process made him find something that was important to him with his own money. And he had all mapped out how much he needed and he had to wait for a month or two before he got there. And I like this idea, which we haven't done yet, but I like this idea of kind of having a 401k plan for either calling it your, your car fund or maybe college fund. I think car might be more fun because that's what people, the kids might be, yeah, looking yeah. forward to, right? Some sort of incentive to give them a reason to be thinking about these issues and planning 
way ahead because we all know that so much of money management it is just planning ahead and it's okay to spend money, but you spend money on the things that you actually really need and really want and value. Uh, it was really fun having Jim and Jane Collins as well as Nords on because for a lot of us, whether we're talking about financial independence or bringing up kids, they really are proof of concept uh, because both their daughters are grown and they've been living this financial independence lifestyle long enough that a lot of us newer converts can see that it can be done and can be done successfully. And on the nature versus nurture issue, I mean, it sounds like Doug's daughter is a lot like him and Marge, right? Yeah. So there's really like the, the nature part there. On the other hand, it sounds like the Collins's daughter is not a lot like them, right? So she's not interested in investing. Yet within those parameters, they were able to still teach her about frugality and investing. So maybe it's both, but it seems like as parents, we probably still have some ability to affect their behavior and to ultimately produce financially savvy kids. Yeah, I still come down to this idea of giving kids responsibility as soon as possible. I, I think that gives them the best chance. And, in like, and like you said, is letting them make a few mistakes early and, and not always stepping in. Because that we're, we're raised in a culture where we are helicopter parents. We prevent everything constantly. We hover over our kids. It's just now the nature of why. It's in our culture for some reason. And I don't think it makes sense to helicopter your, your kids about money and just, or just wildly give them money for whenever they want. And so we tried a thing with candy and it, it kind of backfired on me, but it was also a fun experiment. I, I had the kids wanted some candy and I said, you have your money. So you spend what you want. And I said, um, you can buy as much candy as you want, but you can only have 200 or 200 calories worth of candy per day. And what shows I was trying to, so they got out the, the food scale and they were making the conversions from grams over to, you know, you know how much they could get, but they whittled me down. And then, it, and then it became a 250 calories per day. And I just, they, they're such better negotiators than I am that I just, I, I said, no more, I'm going to cap you. You can buy one thing with, you can spend however much you want, but you can only buy one thing because I wasn't able to manage that side of things too well. But it's, it's that, that's an experimentation with your kids of giving them some responsibility and giving them this, um, this idea of, of being little adults. And so I've recently changed the way I refer to raising children is I don't, I'm not raising children. I'm raising responsible adults and they're, they're transforming themselves from children into responsible adults. And that's something that me and my wife have been trying to work on with our kids because I kind of feel like that's, that's my job and I, I want to make sure I do the best job I can. Yeah. And I think that translates into morals, ethics, and finances. Oh yeah. Um, I, I think it, it runs the gamut. Sure does. All right. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and Paul Thompson, we wanted to thank our guests, Jane Collins, Jim Collins, and Doug Nordman. That's a wrap. And anything that you guys specifically want to avoid. So the conversation, we'll do a little more introduction once Nords comes on, but the conversation is about just kind of second generation phi, the things we, you guys taught to your daughter uh, to help her financially, right? So that she made wise financial decisions, et cetera. So in, in tongue-in-cheek, how we didn't screw up our daughter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think the only thing I want to avoid talking about is my daughter and, and Phi. Anything else? <laughs> yeah, we can just talk about everything else. Yeah. <laughs> that should, I think it's like 5 o'clock in the morning in Hawaii right now. I, it's got to be something like stupid early. and uh, But, you know, he's a surfer. He should be used to it, right? <laughs> hey, Doug, can you hear us? 
I can. Is this thing on? Yeah, we yeah. can hear you. Yeah. Excellent. All right. It's going to be a good morning. Good to see you. I saw all your Chautauqua pictures on Facebook. Like people post vague, vague pictures of Chautauqua and we were all jealous. You should come the next time. There's a potential um, business opportunity here. If there's actually a 200 person waiting list for, for Greece, <laughs> then we could like pick up the scraps, you know, and like do yeah, something of our own. But no, Paul, no one wants to come together to hear us talk. <laughs> We're working on that. We're working on we that. We might be uh, surprised. <laughs> I'm going to hold on a second until someone else comes out. And you and I are boring. I don't want to record us. Well, uh, Doc, you're trying to get out of the stress and you're, you're starting a podcast? I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, really, right? But this is not stress. This is fun. This is fun. Compared I mean, to your job, these, this is easy. <laughs> these, great, these great people I get to talk to. I mean, if you think about it, a podcast is a great excuse to just write someone out of the blue and say, hey, got an hour to talk. Most of the stress is on Paul and I to kind of keep the conversation going and to say, to get you guys to say important things. So <laughs> I get you to take on some of my stress from other parts of my life too. But okay. I don't, I don't know the, the technical part of it, the editing and the, recording and all that so yeah neither do i that's why i have paul yeah well i, I need a paul in my paul, life i did have we met before yes i was at uh, the uh, clearly i leave a lasting impression <laughs> I, I was also at the at midwest i'm especially enjoying the contrast of the picture of the snow that we saw a few minutes ago uh, jim and then now i've been enjoying the the sunrise behind your head all through the entire show. And before, I didn't realize if that was a picture behind you, Doug, or if it was actually your window. But uh -huh. I noticed as the, as, as the sun was rising that it was actually your picture window paradise back, back there. Pretty much, yep. It's a, it's a big distraction. Sometimes not much work gets done in this room. The scene I showed you with the snow is it faces east. So when the, when the weather is clear, this, the sun uh, and the moon, for that matter, rise up over the lake and it's... Mm. Uh, Beautiful. It is, uh, it's dropped yeah. it gorgeous. Oh my goodness, this is my first one, so I am kind of nervous. You, you rocked it. We all sit here and remember our first podcast, and you did just fine. Well, I want to make sure and thank, uh, thank you, Jim, for your book. I go on podcasts a lot and, and are interviewed, and oftentimes people ask me, um, what is the one book that you would recommend for people to get started in this world? And, I'll, and since your book has come out, I always recommend your book because it is just simply the most consumable piece of material out there for something that so many people think is complex. You're not only good looking, but you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said that about him. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. I don't think it works so well if you're both trying to squeeze into the same computer. <laughs> That's probably why he told me I was in another room. <laughs> I thought we were going to be together. <laughs> Jim, have his voice back? Or are we going to just hear him whispering? <laughs> as a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. 
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.